Anyway, Father, uh, thank you for this evening. Thank you for bringing us together uh, for the fellowship that we have uh, in your Son. And I pray that we would uh, worship and honor you in spirit and in truth. I pray that you'd teach us and instruct us in your word, uh, that we would have a living and abiding hope and confidence uh, in all that you've promised and uh, all that you've fulfilled in your Son in the New Covenant and uh, all that you will yet fulfill. And so we thank you for these things uh, and pray that uh, our discussion and words and actions would uh, be to your glory uh, and the glory of your Son. And we pray in his name. Amen. Go ahead and open up to Hebrews 11. And then we'll be going to the, the beginning of uh, Genesis. And as we begin to uh, look at creation, uh, which we started in, in the Gospel of John, a little detour, but uh, relevant, timely, we'll be really looking at about the most fundamental truth uh, that we can look at in all of scripture. Uh, and that's uh, the eternal uh, creator God. That's uh, central to the confession of who uh, Yahweh is, uh, the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, of the uh, Israelites, uh, and uh, really the, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit uh, working together uh, to bring about uh, the, the creation. And when we look at issues of creation and origins, uh, one thing that we have to realize is that uh, they are directly, empirically unobservable. Uh, you can't actually go back and directly observe uh, what happened uh, in the origin of the universe. Uh, they are and empirically, I mean, with the five senses, uh, with our senses, uh, our sight, touch, taste, smell, uh, kind of all the experiments that you do uh, in a laboratory. Uh, you can't uh, directly empirically observe the creation. Uh, you can't directly empirically with the five senses uh, repeat it and test it uh, and isolate it, all its complex variables in a laboratory uh, to, to learn about it. And so if God had not spoken uh, about his creation, uh, there's very little uh, that we could know. Uh, we know, I mean, just even from Romans 1 uh, in Psalm, is it Psalm 19, uh, where God has revealed through, through conscience and the creation uh, at all places, all times, to all people. And that's why general revelation is general as opposed to special it's because it's very general all of creation all times all places all people uh, whether you live in a village somewhere uh, a jungle whether you live in a skyscraper uh, whether you look through microscopes or whatever uh, the creation testifies to the creator such that all people are without excuse uh, and uh, conscience uh, is jaded is hardened is calloused uh, as it becomes with sinners, uh, even our consciences condemn us. Uh, we, we don't even follow the, the conscience that God has given us and that we cauterize and make dull in uh, so that we, we work against it and rebel against God. Uh, and so you see like in Romans 1 uh, that the creation at all times, all places, to all people in conscience uh, shows that there is a creator, but that makes us without excuse. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't get us very far. And even the man and the woman in the garden, uh, God didn't just leave them in the garden to just figure out right and wrong. Huh, I don't think we should eat from this tree. No, he gave them a direct verbal commandment uh, communicating with them. And that's special revelation. That's particular. Sometimes God, God reveals himself in special, particular ways, uh, particular times, places, uh, whether 
uh, through his prophets speaking and proclaiming, thus says the Lord, uh, whether God himself uh, speaks uh, and they heard a voice at Mount Sinai or the man, the woman in the garden or even having uh, Ezekiel, he's almost kind of like an improv actor uh, going out uh, as, as a public display uh, and he'd have to eat only small rations for you know over a hundred days for a long time as the city was going to come under siege had set up models of the city like under siege around him God even took away his voice so he couldn't speak but only when he gave him utterance to declare his word and so even their children and such uh, the names that were given them special revelation to the people from, from God, a sign. Uh, in parables and in scripture, uh, we have the scripture, uh, God's uh, written word uh, given specially uh, to us, to believers, uh, to uh, his people. Uh, and not everyone throughout history uh, has had God's word. Uh, after Babel and scattering the nations, most people did not have a direct revelation uh, from God, uh, speaking and through his prophets and uh, the word of God, scripture. And so basically they were left, uh, and that's kind of what paganism is, or, or to use biblical terminology, uh, kind of the uh, wayward nations, the Gentiles, the peoples who did not know God. Uh, they could only explain uh, the creation uh, in God by their own imaginations and by just appeal to the creation itself. Uh, and that often ended up with uh, pantheism. God is all, God is in all. Uh, I've been reading some uh, Egyptian myths and many of them were written on their very tombs. Uh, and so they, they have these uh, tomb texts and like Book of the Dead and such uh, where they were spells for the dead to cross over like to the other side and especially for pharaohs uh, and they had ideas that were basically oneism uh, the creation God spirits, gods are all one everything has its direct origin uh, and they're God like a, a tomb uh, in the primordial waters and he is the primordial waters emerges from his inert state uh, and other gods evolve uh, through him and come come about and uh, creates them and so all of creation uh, they had a view that was mixed of both the uh, material creation and all the gods and spirits and such and so uh, that's what well it's called by others but uh, Peter Jones makes a distinction between a uh, oneism and twoism a uh, oneism uh, everything everything is one hey good to see you Hi, Jerry. Oh, that was a different room or what? Yep, different room tonight. <laughs> Got the aquarium. Well, come, come sit down. We've already started. I'll uh, send some uh, handouts your way. They've been great. And so, great listeners. <clears throat> we've been kind of on a little detour, but we're uh, working our way into Genesis. And so, Peter Jones boils it down to oneism and twoism. Uh, with oneism, uh, creation, God's everything that exists goes back to one. Uh, all you can do is appeal to the creation itself. And so whether it's uh, an atheistic view, uh, material oneism or monism, uh, everything is just a, a material uh, universe and is either uh, self-existent or brought itself into existence by uh, chance or, or uh, cosmic uh, singularity uh, or you deal with like a spiritual oneism or monism uh, like pantheism God is all, panentheism God is in all uh, again, uh, they're all onest uh, they, they appeal to the universe to explain itself uh, but twoism uh, that the Bible teaches a God uh, is eternal. Uh, he is, as Bob has said, a non-contingent or independent being. Uh, he exists 
independently of all things and depends on nothing for his existence but himself alone. Uh, so God has existed uh, for all uh, eternity and everything else is created. Everything else is dependent or contingent being. It's dependent upon the creator. Uh, it didn't always exist. It doesn't exist in and of itself. It did not bring itself into existence. But God, the one true living creator God, who exists uh, independently of all things, he brought it into existence. Uh, he's uh, an e eternal uh, being uh, existing uh, in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so creation cannot, you can't go directly back. Uh, and it's really a theory of everything. Uh, and that, that's something that models aren't very good at. Uh, weathermen have a hard time just getting the weather right a day, couple, few days out. It's because their models are only so good. Uh, you have a, a chaotic system that has so many variables, so many factors that go into the weather. Uh, the sun, heat, uh, space, celestial bodies, the atmosphere, uh, the oceans, algae in the ocean, everything, you know, all, all these things. Uh, they have a hard enough time predicting what will happen just a couple of few days out. But when you're dealing with creation, you're now dealing with the theory of everything. Uh, and there are a lot of things again and again uh, that if you read much uh, about kind of modern uh, cosmology dealing with, uh, well, cosmogony is technically uh, the origin of the universe, cosmology kind of its structure and such, how it's organized. If you read many of those things, you'll find there are many, many surprises that they come across all the time. Whether, whoa, Pluto doesn't have any craters on it, you know, practically, uh, and such. And yeah, and so there, there are a lot of surprises. And uh, even one, one that I saw within uh, just last couple few years, where they were kind of upgrading and saying, okay, uh, the known universe that we observe. Uh, it's actually, what was it, over several hundred percent bigger than they even thought it was. And that's just kind of what they think that they know so far. And that, that's happened again and again for centuries and millennia. And so the difference between being left to paganism and without God, without his word, where we just have the creation conscience that makes us without excuse uh, in learning about whatever God has revealed about his creation through scripture, through his word, uh, those are two uh, very, very different uh, things. And if we were without his word, uh, we would be left uh, largely uh, to speculate uh, about the origin of the universe, uh, where it came from uh, in God uh, and his nature and what, what he's like. And so just look at Hebrews uh, chapter 11 uh, verses 1 through 3, and here you have this great cloud of witnesses, uh, and he's encouraging them and stimulating them to persevere in faith, to hold fast to God's promises, to his coming kingdom, uh, to walk by, by faith. And he begins, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And so he starts, his first illustration, the beginning. Uh, starts with, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is his whole thesis and point uh, that he will use to exhort his audience uh, to believe. Uh, like all these believers throughout history, uh, that uh, God called them to himself uh, and empowered them uh, to walk by faith in his promises. Uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And so it's not just a, a blind leap of faith, uh, not, not just a blind leap of faith or a leap into the darkness or, well, I feel or, you know, I just hit... I just have faith because, you know, because of my faith, uh, kind of faith in faith. 
it's not those things, but faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's assurance of founded on God's word, God's promises, uh, his trustworthy character, uh, his faithfulness uh, in the past, uh, which shows that he will also be faithful uh, in the future. And so faith is the assurance of things hoped for. They're, they're hoped for, but we have assurance. Uh, we have grounding, uh, grounded on God's character and his, uh, his deeds, his word. Uh, the conviction of things not seen. And so uh, it's a conviction. Uh, convictions are in something uh, that are light or flimsy or, well, you know, I, I hope... I hope that I'll win the lottery, or I, I hope that you know something will happen, you know, next week or the next year. No, it's it's a it's a conviction, something resolute uh, and firm. Uh, and then he goes on uh, to support what he's saying: for by it the people of old received their commendation. And his first illustration: by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Uh, and that's something that we have by faith or by uh, faith has been so abused in our culture, uh, really the word trust, uh, to trust uh, God uh, and to have our convictions uh, and our assurance and hope rest upon uh, him and his word and promises. Uh, and we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. And that very thing right there uh, is anathema uh, to uh, academia today, uh, to those who uh, raise themselves up as themselves as uh, the, the most intelligent, uh, the wisest. Uh, today, uh, the assumption is we must explain everything that exists uh, purely by purposeless, meaningless, irrational, amoral chance. Uh, we have to explain uh, the creation or the universe, don't even call it a creation, uh, we have to explain the cosmos simply by appeal to itself uh, apart from God. Uh, simply by uh, purposeless, meaningless, irrational, amoral, naturalistic chance, uh, physical matter. It has, it has to explain itself. And to not do that, well, you're unscientific. It's, a, it's an assumption. Uh, it's, it's, it's a worldview. Uh, it's really methodological atheism uh, that's assumed. Uh, and actually, there are many uh, even professing uh, Christian professors uh, in such uh, that uh, approach their various disciplines uh, in the same way. Uh, I had an ethics teacher uh, who uh, basically uh, you couldn't appeal uh, to revelation, you couldn't appeal uh, to God's word, uh, you basically had to reason uh, ethically about the universe uh, simply by uh, man's created ethical systems apart from God. Uh, and to, to not follow along with that, uh, you'd be punished for it. So I, I even had a paper where I spoke with her. All right, you know, I, I can use these systems even for like the sake of argument, you know, to better understand uh, whether it's uh, Aristotelian or Platonic uh, moral systems and reasoning and such. But uh, I was approaching it uh, a theological issue as a biblical studies student and so I basically set up ahead of time okay I'll you know appeal to scripture for these things but then I'll also address uh, virtues and principles and uh, such like that and how ends and means fall into it uh, and she agreed she, she was okay with it and I ended up getting a D minus and she wrote this is indeed a well-written paper but it's theology, not philosophy, B minus. And she didn't even address, I had an appendix in it uh, that 
where I argued that when it comes to ethics, right and wrong, uh, good and evil, you shall, you shall not, uh, obligation, that the only foundation for that uh, is in God. Uh, it, it's in uh, the personal uh, God uh, and his character, uh, his good character, and uh, his word that corresponds with his character uh, and purposes. And so I even argued that apart from God, you have no basis uh, for moral ethical obligation. You need an obligator. Uh, you need a moral authority. You know, one in whose character, he's absolutely perfect and righteous and holy and good. The very standard of goodness. And she didn't address any of that. So there are things like that. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, and that's just, you know, that's just kind of a small example. That's just one example of the things that go about. I remember hearing a student, I can't remember if they're Yale, could have been like Harvard or one of the Ivy League schools, who who was a Darwinist, a neo-Darwinist, and I think even an atheist, uh, but neo-Darwinist anyway. The, he accepted all the teaching, but the teacher uh, encouraged the students you know, to be skeptical, to question everything and such. So he wrote a paper from the perspective of someone who supported intelligent design, just from the perspective, even though he didn't agree with it just for the sake of, sake of argument, to, to better understand it and see if he could poke holes uh, into uh, neo-Darwinism. And I can't remember. He, he got a D something or maybe an F on, on the paper <laughs> from the professor. And uh, he ended up uh, going and talking with the professor. And when the professor found out, oh, you accept? You accept our, oh, you're just the sake of argument, give him an A. No. He was like a straight-A student, really good student. Okay, can I say something yeah. just real quick? Mm -hmm. I took a community ed class, mm -hmm. not even for a grade, just for your own mm -hmm. learning um, in German, and the professor was very left-wing, mm -hmm. and I expressed a few political views that were different from hers, mm -hmm. and she started doing things to me like it was never my turn to read my paper and mm -hmm. um, oh. I'm like whoa what if I was working toward a grade I mean I don't care yeah. if she you know wants to be mean to me mm -hmm. I'm a adult but if I was working toward a degree and had paid good money and you're not you're not even free you know where's this uh, academic freedom and you know oh. uh, argument and you know, thinking in, uh, things through and such, uh, for many, it's not there. My sister had a, a secular ethics professor who is better than mine. <laughs> I, I would have preferred to uh, have her class uh, where they actually dealt with more interesting issues. <laughs> and so even, even in, you know, so-called uh, Christian university, uh, university, college uh, and such, uh, you can be punished uh, for those things. Uh, my, my chemistry teacher in, in uh, that school, he actually uh, dealt more with sort of the underlying like biblical worldview and foundational uh, philosophical theological issues. Uh, he was more like in tune with those things than she was uh, in, in the, the philosophy department. Would you say that, you know, during the arguments over the last 40 years, over abortion and um, gay marriage and this mm -hmm. sort of thing, mm -hmm. that the uh, conservative side, and often there's no conservative side except the religious conservative side on, that, on these questions, mm -hmm. that they fail by trying to win their argument in the court of natural reason? I think that, you know, that there could maybe be some limited place. I do not have uh, biblically uh, great confidence uh, in sort of uh, natural philosophy. Uh, I think that there are uh, great limits to it where, okay, you see God has given conscience. Uh, you see that God has revealed himself clearly 
uh, through the creation. And their general revelation, a lot of times people will equate it with science. No, that actually takes the general out of general revelation. That makes it, oh, that's the particular domain of people who wear white lab coats, you know. No, general revelation, if you read through Romans 1, uh, Psalm, I think it's 19, all people, all places, all times, all of creation testifies to the creator. So whether you look through a microscope uh, or uh, whether you're looking at the stars or you live in the jungle or wherever, uh, for, for all time, uh, people have been without excuse. And it doesn't take any uh, complex uh, reasoning or anything, but says these things are, they're clearly uh, seen. Uh, you, I mean, even more so than you see like a magnificent uh, painting, well, someone must have painted that. You see the creation in all of its intricacy uh, in glory or, or what, even after the fall, you know, what, uh, what remains uh, of, of God's uh, good creation. You see evidence everywhere for the creator uh, in conscience that uh, we are obligated uh, to him, uh, to the moral a moral judge who's stamped right and wrong even on our, our hearts. But when you read uh, what Paul says there, and I think look uh, throughout, uh, throughout scripture, it's limited in that makes people without excuse. Uh, unsanctified uh, reasoning and such apart from God, uh, explaining you know, all of creation, all the universe apart from him, uh, right and wrong, people go, they go astray, uh, away from God, away from revelation. And even uh, as we were talking about earlier, the man, the woman in the garden, even before they fell, God did not leave them without his word to just, oh, just figure out which trees you can eat from and which you shouldn't, you know, apart from yourself. It was Eve who added, nor shall you touch it. God never said that. She added that. Whether, well, you know, if we shouldn't eat it, maybe we should just not even touch it. You know, it's like, oh, what, what, what a big meaning. You know? <laughs> don't, yeah, don't look at it, you know. Um, and so I, I think as you look at scripture and see what happens as God scatters the peoples and uh, after the Tower of Babel, they don't have God's word. They don't have his revelation. They don't have his authoritative spokesmen and prophets. Uh, then you see how it leads into idolatry and such. And so I don't think that sort of uh, natural sort of philosophy when it comes to like ethics and such, uh, I don't see that. Uh, I think it's very, very limited. Uh, and I think if you look at like the apostles and prophets and such, uh, what people needed uh, was the word of God. Uh, they needed to hear the gospel uh, they needed to, uh, to hear God's law uh, and be convicted of their sins uh, and, and to hear the gospel. And so I don't see sort of the, the whole focus uh, of the uh, apostles and prophets on, well, you know, we'll, we'll just come up with some sort of natural philosophy-like argument. And, and, you know, we really have to go take the Roman Senate, you know, over... Uh, we have to get our guy as emperor and such. And well, if, the, if God saves the emperor, you know, uh, praise be to God. <laughs> but but uh, their focus was is on the gospel and proclaiming God's word. Uh, and even like uh, James White, uh, Christian apologist, he's spoken about. You look at like Acts 17 and uh, Paul, and it says that, oh, you know, as I, I was walking uh, through and. Uh, seeing all, all their monuments and such. And, you know, you're, I observe you're a very religious people and you, you have this monument to an unknown God. So what you worship in vain, I now proclaim to you. The God who created all things, you know, and such. He proclaims the God of the Israelites. Uh, and wh where does he get all that? From scripture. And where does he go? Uh, some will try and say, oh, well, he's just you know, he's coming to them just on their own terms and such. Well, he cuts straight to not only uh, is uh, him as a Jew that uh, they know the one true living God who has revealed himself and who's the creator of all things, but 
he goes straight to the thing that would offend him the most, the resurrection of the dead. Cuts straight to the resurrection. And they're, they're offended. Uh, and a bunch of them started mocking and laughing at him. And some, well, we'll hear you again on this, you know, sometime. Uh, but there were a few, oh, there were a few who believed. A few who you believed. that part was mocking? Oh, so, well, maybe, maybe not that part. Yeah, okay. there, may be, there may have been some, I yeah. think, that, well, okay, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll hear you again on this. We'd like to hear more. Uh, but, That's enough for today. But you had those who were laughing and mocking and ridiculing them over resurrection. It's like nothing was more anathema uh, to, to Greek philosophers and such than resurrection from the dead. You know, it is absurd and foolish, and uh, why would you want that? Uh, especially like with Platonic philosophy and such uh, that uh, came before in Neoplatonism. And, uh, no, you want to be released from the body. Uh, and so and then kind of, you had divine spark from goes all the way back to the creator and you go back to him and such. And so he went straight to the apostolic uh, proclamation of the gospel and the resurrection. And so, yeah, I, I think when it comes to, I think biblically the prescription uh, that's given uh, for uh, the wayward nations is to proclaim God's word. I, I think that has to be central uh, to what we're about. It's, why else are we here, you know, on, on the earth, uh, if not to uh, God's saving his people? He's, he's calling people uh, to himself. And so there are things that are true and such. And some of it, you know, they might kind of get from kind of a remnant of like a biblical worldview. Uh, but you do see that Paul does say that like with uh, a man and woman, uh, one of the examples that he goes to, first with idolatry, a man twisting the creator-creature distinction uh, in worshiping uh, the creation and all the cre uh, creatures. Uh, and so uh, you have this twisting uh, of God's uh, creation uh, that he's given as a witness uh, to, him, to all people, uh, all times, all places, that he's the creator. Uh, and then he goes to, as another illustration, uh, he goes to uh, men uh, burning in lust for men. And now you have the twisting of you see that, I mean, it's as clear as day that there's a natural function in design uh, in God's creation uh, of man and woman. Uh, men uh, cannot uh, give birth to children, uh, and women cannot father them. Uh, and it, it's only in that relationship uh, that uh, is naturally fulfilled in uh, the bearing of uh, in a uh, rearing of, of children uh, in no other. I mean, it's, it's as uh, plain as day. And so he uses that as an example. And so uh, there are some who, like uh, Robert P. George and others, uh, he's a uh, Roman Catholic, uh, and so he'll use, like, natural law reasoning and such. Uh, and there are others, who, like Protestants or even evangelicals, uh, who'll use that and... Uh, certainly, biblically, there's something there, you know, in, in the creation that makes people without excuse for it. But apart from God's word, apart from transformed and renewed uh, lives by, by his spirit, uh, I don't know how much uh, difference, uh, you know, it's going to make in the long run. You look at cultures that haven't known God for hundreds and thousands of years and there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of distortion. Ben Franklin in his autobiography mm -hmm. said, and, and it's in there somewhere. But I'm probably not quoting it exactly. Mm -hmm. but I'm uh, talking about reason, mm -hmm. and probably implied reason alone, unguided mm -hmm. by any um, revelation. Yeah. The great thing about reason, okay, but autonomous reason. As the ultimate authority and the law unto itself. Yes, and yeah. and I'll even add, I think mm -hmm. in the context when he said it was, the great thing about reason, great if you want to get away with whatever you're trying to get away with, mm -hmm. is you can come up with a reason for about anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, we we can rationalize a whole lot, can't we? Yeah. Uh, and even even as even as believers. Yeah. Uh, 
And there, I'll have to put up uh, some lectures on the website for this class. Uh, Greg, is it pronounced Fraser or Fraser? Uh, he's a master's college professor. Uh, he studied uh, uh, the primary core founding fathers uh, for decades now and wrote his thesis on them. Uh, and he has some uh, really awesome lectures. Uh, and he, he would argue that the primary founding fathers, so like Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, uh, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, uh, George Washington, uh, and such, that the, the primary founding fathers, uh, he would say that they are uh, theistic rationalists with uh, emphasis on rationalist. And so they were theists, but reason was the uh, ultimate and supreme authority. Uh, and so if they deemed, for instance, uh, all miracles or some miracles uh, as not according with reason, uh, do away, away with them uh, and such. Uh, and uh, like they all re rejected the Trinity. A lot of times people will quote John Adams out of context and uh, will just say, oh, but he, uh, he grew up and went to a Congregationalist church. Uh, you know, uh, Calvinist, very conservative and such. Well, it was Unitarian. Uh, they rejected the Trinity. Uh, in fact, he has uh, some of the strongest statements uh, mocking and ridiculing the Trinity and saying, even if God at Mount Sinai told him directly uh, that he was three in one, he wouldn't believe him. He, he'd assume he was having a vision or hallucinating or anything but uh, the Trinity. Uh, and he mocked and ridiculed the Holy Spirit and uh, rejected uh, substitutionary atonement and uh, deity of Christ and all sorts of things. And uh, there are some who like to quote him out of context, but in a lot of those quotes, just keep reading a little bit and you'll find that he and, he and Thomas Jefferson, uh, they even said they believed the same thing. Uh, they, they were... Uh, Kind of two peas in a, a pod uh, on uh, on so many of of those things, and so I'll put I'll put those up. But uh, what you're talking about, like reason, is an ultimate authority. Autonomous human reason is a law unto itself, supreme authority uh, over scripture and, and everything else. Uh, yeah, that's what that's what many of them held to. Now, talking about all the founding fathers, you know everyone who was in the Continental Congress and such. Uh, Greg uh, Fraser uh, points out, well, they had uh, many of them about is that it almost be kind of like saying, uh, people in Congress today believe, dot, dot, dot. Uh, they had different backgrounds and <laughs> had different beliefs and such. And so you can't talk about everyone, but he focuses on uh, kind of the core ones for the Declaration of Independence, uh, the Constitution, and uh, such. So uh, I'll put I'll put those uh, on the on the website. And so now let's uh, turn to uh, Genesis chapter one. I didn't mean to go so long on on those things, but I think it's uh, important issues. Oh. <laughs> Where is that, Jerry? Where's Genesis 1? <laughs> you got it? All right. Chapter 1. <laughs> Page 1. That's for all the times right. I really couldn't find something. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I, I believe in the, the whole Bible, uh, all the way from table of contents to maps, you know. <laughs> Heard that one before. Although I suppose table, table of contents, you, canon, you know. So, but uh, you know, here I, I don't know how far we'll get on some of the things uh, tonight, uh, other than what we've covered. What, what I want to look at is a, a bit about uh, to deal with some. Foundational issues, just it. because uh, Genesis as a whole and its early chapters uh, are about as attacked as anything uh, in God's Word. 
today from, from all corners. And so we'll be looking at uh, the uh, genre of the creation account. Uh, then we'll be looking at the meaning of the word uh, yom, uh, day. Uh, and then I'll also want to deal with uh, a bit of the uh, structure and theme uh, of Genesis. And so let's just begin with uh, the genre of uh, Genesis. Because there, there are some that will say, well, it's just a literary uh, framework, uh, the creation account. And so it's not really meant uh, to uh, convey information about uh, history per se. Well, maybe that God created. Uh, but uh, as far as looking at uh, details of God creating in six days, resting on the seventh and such, uh, this is just a literary framework for conveying that uh, God is the creator of all things. Uh, and some kind of treat it even as sort of a, a poetic uh, framework. Uh, but uh, we'll see that it's, uh, it's fundamentally a historical uh, narrative, although a biblical uh, historical narrative, uh, it's highly structured, uh, it's good literature, uh, involves uh, word plays. Uh, you can even have chiastic structures, A, B, C, D, uh, C, B, A patterns, and uh, things like that. But it does not bear all of the characteristics of uh, poetry. And so first, let's just look at, well, since our time's limited, we'll just use a, a very close example that we've used before. Uh, look at Genesis chapter uh, 4. And we have a, a poem by, by Lamech. It's, uh, we'll go from it's, uh, verse 23. And so you have Cain's uh, genealogy uh, in his ge genealogy uh, you see a uh, an offspring uh, of of evildoers uh, offspring of the serpent who are in solidarity with him in rebellion against uh, God and after having his sons uh, you get to uh, Lamech addressing his wives uh, verse 23 and now notice the most fundamental feature of Hebrew poetry is uh, parallelism. Uh, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And so you basically have three couplets uh, in parallel. Uh, and some of them you see uh, synonymous parallelism uh, where the two lines are uh, synonymous with one another, which doesn't always mean they mean the exact same thing, but they mean more or less uh, the same thing. They're, they're very closely uh, related and sometimes one might elaborate a little more uh, on, on the other, give a little more detail and such, but uh, total, uh, total synonymy would be where they're absolutely identical in their, uh, their meaning. But a lot of times they'll just have it. Uh, and the important point is that their similarities are focused on. That's the salient focused point uh, between them. So uh, the first couplet Ada and Zilah, hear my voice. And then he basically repeats it. You wives of Lamech. Well, who's that? Ada and Zilah. You wives of Lamech. Uh, listen to what I say. So getting their attention. You know, I, I have something important that I want to share with you. Next couplet. I have killed a man for wounding me. 
a young man for striking me. Uh, and so here with synonymous parallelism, usually same person uh, that he's talking about, uh, just talk, refers to him uh, in a slightly uh, different way. So I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man, man, young man, for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. And now you hear parallel elements there, but this one kind of builds on the last and takes it a notch further. Uh, Cain is not Lamech, but Lamech is his uh, descendant. Uh, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, in which Yahweh said, if anyone kills Cain, uh, that uh, he shall avenge him uh, sevenfold, which uh, seven, the number of fullness, you know, completion at creation. You get the seventh day, uh, it was all completed, it was all finished. And so, as the thematic idea of fullness, so God would bring full vengeance on someone who would strike Cain dead. A God, uh, vengeance belongs to God, uh, and he would deal with it. Uh, he'd deal with Cain in his own time. Uh, but after the flood, then he says, uh, anyone, uh, anyone who kills man, you know, sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made him in the image of God. Now he institutes uh, capital punishment in the death penalty. And so now it's responsibility uh, to... Uh, seek justice uh, for the shedding of innocent blood. Uh, and that's what governments are instituted for. Uh, Caesar and the governing authorities don't bear the sword in vain. Uh, their their prim primary existence uh, is to uphold uh, justice and to protect uh, in innocent lives uh, and those who would kill them. And so God would bring uh, full vengeance, full justice on someone who would kill uh, Cain. It wasn't their place. Uh, it was God's place, God's responsibility that he took upon himself. And so that's true justice. But Lamech takes it seven times further. Uh, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. This is beyond full. Uh, uh, basically, and so for wounding me, for striking me, uh, if you look at Lamech, you know, the wrong way, I'll kill you. You know, he's that kind of guy. So he's like you, born in a hurricane. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you, you even look at me the wrong way, I'll, I'll, I'll take you out. You know, I'm done with you. And so he's basically a tyrant uh, over this. You, you see culture advancing. You see the city that was built uh, that Cain named after his son. After God, you know, after his son making a name for himself, kind of like the Tower of Babel. And so here's this mighty man who uh, takes vengeance on any uh, wrong he perceives or an anyone who would get in uh, his way. And Jesus, in Matthew, was it that Peter asks, well, should, should I forgive my brother seven times? So, you know, kind of idea of fullness. Jesus says, no, uh, 70 times seven. He basically turns what Lamech says on its head. So we're, we're, we're to, uh, as those who have been, been forgiven <laughs> more than 70 times seven, uh, you know, we, we had debt that we, we could not repay. Uh, we are to be uh, overflowing in forgiveness uh, for, for those who are repentant, for those who are, Believers, he even says you can forgive your enemies. So they, they may not always be repentant uh, and could lead eventually to church discipline if you have a serious uh, issue in someone who's truly not repentant. But we're still, we're, we're to forgive. Uh, we're not to hold on to that uh, and to bear ill will uh, and a grudge and antipathy uh, against believers or even against our, our enemies. So he flips Lamech's idea completely on its head. And so this is the primary characteristic of Hebrew poetry 
uh, is parallelism. Uh, and although you can get elements, you can get chiasms and uh, inclusios, you know, kind of bookends and such, where section of scripture uh, will open with one thing and then kind of close with uh, a similar idea uh, in narrative. You get word plays and sound plays and irony and such. Uh, in poetry, uh, those things uh, tend to be uh, heightened uh, much, uh, much, much more of that. Uh, and also, uh, parallelism is really the core issue of uh, Hebrew poetry that's the most frequent, but uh, kind of all of these things uh, together. But as we look at uh, Genesis, we'll see a, a couple, uh, and there are others that we could talk about, uh, but uh, features of, of narrative. Uh, and first I'll uh, just uh, read this uh, passage. I want, want to get it. There are many conservative scholars uh, who say this, uh, and I, I was going to pick up this quote that's drawn from Casuto, but I didn't get it in time. So this is from a liberal scholar named Hendel, uh, but it's repeated by, uh, you see it with uh, Matthews and a lot of uh, conservative uh, commentators as well, and especially this quote about uh, from Casuto. But I'll start just reading from the beginning of his quote. Uh, he says, well, here dealing with, uh, in the creation account, uh, in narrative, we, we'll see kind of chiasms and things like that and some parallelism. You see a little more of it when you get to the seventh day. Uh, but a lot of times, even where you start to see a chiastic structure, a lot of times it's broken up. Uh, and they, they'll kind of be subtly just divided and uh, things will be uh, altered uh, just subtly uh, for, uh, with uh, variation and, and other things. And uh, Whereas in poetry, uh, you see much more intensive uh, parallelism and such. Uh, and so he says, uh, this argument for the primacy uh, of the uh, Masoretic uh, rabbinic reading, that the, the rabbis, uh, the text that they preserved, uh, in the harmonistic origin of the uh, Greek reading accords with our understanding of the literary style uh, of P, he means the priestly source, ignore that. We'll, we'll maybe talk about that a little bit, J-E-D-P. Uh, it's uh, source theory, and we, uh, that ignores the explicit sources that we actually looked at uh, in Scripture uh, in Moses' writing. So he says, uh, McEvenu uh, has patiently traced uh, the uh, priestly narrative style uh, in which a tendency for structured organization and repetition uh, is offset by consistent small variations within the pattern. Uh, Casuto characterized this tendency uh, in Genesis 1 as a general stylistic rule. Uh, quoting Casuto, uh, it is a basic principle of biblical narrative prose uh, not to repeat a statement in identical terms. Uh, with fine artistic sense, uh, the narrator likes to alter the wording uh, or to shorten it uh, or to change the order uh, of uh, the words. Uh, as he goes. And so just talking about with uh, historical narrative, uh, you have uh, more variation uh, and not uh, so much parallelism as is typical of uh, poetry, uh, like we saw with uh, Lamech. You know, three couplets just right in a row uh, along the way. Uh, and then, let's see, what we'll be looking at, we'll probably have to deal with this next time uh, are just a couple of the elements of a narrative. Uh, and so uh, in narrative, uh, I have a couple of things drawn from a, a believing uh, scholar uh, and linguist named uh, Stephen, uh, Stephen Levinson. Uh, and he, he draws from a, another scholar named Longacre uh, talking about how a couple aspects that are central uh, to distinguishing narrative from, uh, from strictly poetry uh, has to do with uh, certain uh, events uh, that follow depend on those that uh, come before uh, in time. 
Uh, and so, for example, as we'll see as we look at like the creation account, uh, it opens uh, just looking at the uh, first, uh, first verse. So what, what follows depends on what comes before. So we start, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we'll see, this is uh, the basic structure of uh, creation, uh, bringing it uh, into existence, uh, the unfinished earth uh, and the heavens that he's going to bring to completion uh, through the remaining six days and the seventh day of uh, rest. But as far as uh, the creation of light, uh, as far as uh, the creation of uh, the heavens in the more restricted sense, separating the waters below, the waters above, uh, the, the rakia, the expanse, uh, uh, the, the heavens, uh, the atmosphere uh, where the clouds are, uh, the rain comes from, uh, and also uh, all of the vegetation, all of the stars and luminaries that uh, fill the creation, all of the creatures. Uh, you can't have any of that. You can't have the creation uh, being brought from its uh, unbarren, unproductive state to a productive, habitable creation and then filling it without God uh, first creating the heavens and the earth, uh, the basic structure uh, of creation. That has to come first. Uh, you, you have to start there. Uh, and uh, for, for instance, uh, we'll see people talk about like forming or filling uh, or uh, bringing uh, the barren creation, uh, making it uh, into productive, habitable environments uh, and then filling those environments. Uh, and so preparation the first three days and then filling the creation uh, days four through six. Uh, that, uh, for instance, uh, with the uh, separation of the waters and the heavens above, uh, you can't have uh, the fish to inhabit the waters below. And you have the gathering of seas on day three. And the birds to fly in the sky and to land on the earth and the trees and such uh, unless God first separated the waters and brought forth the dry land. Uh, you couldn't have the man and the beasts, uh, uh, the land creatures and man, uh, unless he first brought forth the dry land on day three, on the, the seas on, on day four. Uh, and he couldn't provide them with all of the, the trees uh, and the vegetation, fruit-bearing vegetation for uh, food unless he created on, on day three. And so uh, what follows depends on what proceeds. Uh, you, you can't have the fall of man until after the first man and woman are created. Uh, you, you can't have their rebellion uh, in the garden. Uh, you, can't have, uh, you can't have the 12 tribes of Israel uh, if it wasn't for the first man, woman, Seth, you know, and the whole line that comes before them. And so the events that follow depend on what comes before. Uh, and so uh, that's a feature of narrative. We're going uh, somewhere. Uh, the basic question of narrative is what happened? Uh, what happened? Uh, each event moves it forward. Uh, what happened? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then we have a little pause of the narrative. Okay. Uh, he then describes the state of the, uh, of the earth. Uh, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit was hovering over the face of the waters. And so this, this darkness, uh, these waters, uh, the barrenness, uh, God is going to resolve these things. He's going to bring light into the darkness. Uh, he's going to separate the waters uh, and make the sky above uh, in, in the dry land and bring forth the vegetation. Uh, but then we go back to not just describing uh, the, the state of things, but again, what happened? And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and morning, the first day. It tells us what happened. Uh, God's creative acts, uh, God's uh, speaking, his decrees, uh, bringing forth uh, the creation, 
uh, from day one. You can't have day two unless you have day one first. You can't have day three unless you have day two and one first. Uh, and so uh, it's going somewhere, uh, the, the narrative. It's moving forward. And so that's one of the characteristics of narrative that uh, we'll talk about, give more examples uh, next week. And the other uh, will be that uh, it's largely dri driven forward by uh, personal agents, uh, those who act, uh, those who, well, God here, you know, he's the ultimate supreme agent and actor, uh, creating all things, speaking, uh, bringing, uh, bringing about all of these environments, bringing them to completion, filling them on days four through six, uh, providing vegetation for the man and all the creatures and giving them dominion. Uh, he's the supreme uh, actor overseeing all things through all of Genesis and all of the Bible and even books that don't mention him, like Esther. He's, he's, <laughs> he's behind absolutely everything. Uh, and so uh, we'll look at that uh, more uh, next week, uh, and then we'll also deal with uh, the meaning of yom, uh, day, uh, and look at the, the basic uh, structure, how these things are arranged, days one through three and uh, four through six. And there we'll be looking more at the charts that we have here. So uh, if you remember, uh, bring them back, but have some extras too. So let's...